generative AI is here and it has changed the rules of the game. Experts like Seth Godin and Robert McKee have been very clear. The authors who are going to make it in this business are those who are writing truly amazing, knock-your-socks-off innovative stories. The bar is that high. AI will replace mediocre writers. But at some point, everybody is mediocre. So what do you do? You educate yourself. And the good news is that there's still time, but you've got to start leveling up right away. I'm Valerie Francis, and I've got a series of webinars to help you do just that. My specialty is helping authors like you put theory into practice. Understanding the tools of our trade and being able to apply them with precision is no longer an option. It's an absolute necessity. So go to valeriefrancis.ca slash webinars for more information and sign up for the notifications. You can't afford not to. If you want to write stories your readers will love, there are three things you need to do. Understand storytelling principles, see how other writers have applied those principles, and then use them in your own work. Here on the Story Nerd podcast, our goal is to demystify story theory. We'll help you with the first two steps so that you can get started with the third. I'm Melanie Hill, writer, editor, and poet, and I have a passion for spy stories, fairy tales, and master detective novels. And I'm Valerie Francis. I'm a writer and literary editor, and I focus on stories by, for, and about women. On today's episode, Valerie pitched The Full Monty so that we can study cast design. This 1997 film was directed by Peter Cataneo from a screenplay by Simon Beaufoy. Of course, there will be spoilers because we can't talk about the movie without talking about the movie, but I think we're pretty safe with The Full Monty this week. (laughs) And we'd really love it if you could give our show a rating and review. For Apple Podcast listeners, you can do it right from your phone. Simply go to the show's landing page and scroll to the bottom. It's that simple. All right, Valerie, this is an oldie and a goodie. (laughs) How did you go this week with The Full Monty? Well, first things first, I have to confess that I was nervous to study this one this week, Melanie. I absolutely loved this movie when it came out, and I really did wonder if, you know, studying it and if looking under the hood of this movie would reveal a bunch of storytelling weaknesses that, honestly, I did not want to see. (laughs) So I am very happy to report that... um, Yes, the movie was just as entertaining this time around as it was when I saw it uh, the first time. Phew. So (laughs) once I got that out of the way and I could relax and enjoy the movie again, uh, I thought about the work that I've been doing on character development so far this season and how it might apply to comedic characters. And I wondered if comedic characters are developed the same way as a dramatic character or something different needs to happen. So naturally, I went back to McKee's book on character because that's my primary resource this season. And here's what McKee has to say. And this comes from page 196. The comic mind is ruled by a blind obsession, single-minded as a stone, persistent as the sea, repetitious as rain. To create a farce, the comedy writer locks the character into her fixation then exploits it at every opportunity. 
Now I'm focusing on Gaz this week because he's the protagonist. And yeah, I think this definition fits him really well. (laughs) Gaz is like a dog with a bone, honestly. He comes up with this harebrained idea and he simply will not let it go. He's obsessed with stripping (laughs) as a way to earn money. And he ropes Dave and the other guys into doing it with him. Now, I want to pause here for a minute. Because at first blush, this doesn't sound any different than a dramatic character going after his object of desire. I mean, how many times, Melanie, have you and I gone on and on about object of desire on this podcast? You know, and the object of desire is the thing that the character wants so badly that he's going to go after it with everything that he's got. Well, that sounds a lot like what Gaz is doing here in the Full Monty, right? It is true that dramatic characters and comedic characters are going after something with all they've got. But for the comedic character, the object of desire, it's like the object of desire is sort of pushed to the level of blind obsession. It's like an extreme that's almost ridiculous. The idea of Gaz and the boys becoming strippers is extreme. And it is almost ridiculous. It's off the wall, man. It's totally off the wall. And Gaz's drive to do it is unrelenting. So I think blind obsession is a good description of it because Gaz is blind to the reality of it. That's why when it's finally showtime, Gaz refuses to go on stage, right? He does wonder at one point if he's making a fool of himself, and he he asks his son Nathan if if that's what he's doing. But that passes very quickly, and that question that he asks Nathan of, am I making a fool of myself, is kind of just like a punchline to a joke, and, and then they cut the scene and go on to something else. But something that I want everyone to pay attention to here is that the show is not Gaz's object of desire. It might be his blind obsession but it's not actually his object of desire. What Gaz wants is to retain shared custody of his son. Whatever else Gaz is, he is a loving father. And we get the sense that while he might be able to take all of the other kicks that life has given him, losing his son is a bridge too far. So Gaz wants to keep access to his son and for that he needs money. Stripping, which is his blind obsession, is merely the means to the end. It's his way of getting the money. It's his way of achieving his object of desire. Now, McKee also points out that comic characters don't change because they have no need. All right. So I just finished saying that Gaz needs money. And he does. But the word need is being used here in two different ways. And see, this is why story theory gets so tangly sometimes and why it can just seem so confusing and make us want to throw in the towel. My best advice is that when you are trying to learn a new concept in story theory and it seems confusing to you or it seems to contradict itself somehow or seems to not jibe with something else that you already understand, 
check to make sure that you are understanding the terms in the way the author means them. So let me just talk about this concept of need here. When it comes to character development, need means that there's something about them as a person that needs to change. Once they change, they may or may not get what they want, but they do need to change. For example, your main character might need to learn to be less selfish or might need to become more mature or might need to develop more confidence in himself. Those are all needs of the personality. Like that's the, that's the thing in their personality that needs to change so that they at least have a hope of getting their object of desire. Now, Gaz is not this kind of character though. <laughs> he does not change. At the end of the movie, he is the same guy he was at the beginning. And just to prove this point, if you, if you doubt what I'm saying, go watch the Full Monty TV show. It's, uh, it just came out the last couple of years. I think it's six episodes. And you're going to see from episode one that Gaz is exactly the same guy that he is here in this movie. Not only hasn't he, has he not changed in this movie, he hasn't changed in the 25 years since the movie. Because he hasn't changed, his life hasn't improved at all. Now, he does have a good rapport with his son, Nathan, who grows up to be a, a police officer. But now he has a teenage daughter and their relationship is strained. The man still has no money. He is still living in a dump and he's divorced for a second time right? Like this is the same guy. In saying that, just because a comic character doesn't change, it doesn't mean he's flat. He's not a caricature. He's a comic character. In the book on character, Robert McKee does a deep dive into Archie Leach from A Fish Called Wanda. So if you are writing a comedy, I recommend you go and uh, check out his work on that. As far as Gaz is concerned, I think he has three dimensions. Imagine that, three dimensions for the main character of the full Monty. A lighthearted, super funny performance story about a bunch of steel workers who decide to strip. <laughs> and he's got, I think, three dimensions. I mean, well done to the writers and filmmakers here. Now, McKee lists six different types of contradictions in his book, um, well worth going and studying them. The three that I have identified for Gaz, I think are all the same type of contradiction, and it's what Robert McKee calls a contradiction between characterization and true character. So the dimensions are as follows. On one hand, Gaz is quite superficial, but on the other hand, he really does feel deeply. Yes, he's always joking around, he's flippant, he's sarcastic. He really doesn't seem to take anything very seriously. He steals and gets other people to steal. He sabotages Gerald's job interview, all that stuff. Yet, he expresses his love for his son and he empathizes with Dave when he realizes that Dave and Jean are having marital issues. 
So that's one dimension. And again, a dimension is a set of conflicting traits. The second one is that, yes, Gaz seems lazy. I mean, he does nothing at Job Club. He's on dole. His ex-wife offers him a job, but he won't take it because it's only uh, for £2.50 an hour. But he's actually working very hard to make this performance a reality. I mean, if Gaz decided to take that can-do attitude of his and channel it into something a little more productive or positive, he'd have a job. He really would. He's got plenty of get up and go. He is not lazy. And the third dimension that I have identified for Gaz is that externally, he is cocky. He is just full of bravado. But internally, he is self-conscious. He gets cold feet right at the last minute and he refuses to strip. And he also knows that he can't dance. And so they go to Gerald for help with dancing. So these are dimensions within a protagonist in a comedy. I think it's really well done. So when I discovered this, I thought, make no wonder we empathized with Gaz so much and why we enjoyed his character and why there was such a catharsis at the end when they finally uh, did the show and got the money from the show. Because the dimensions make a character really interesting to us. All right, so if we look at the cast design and we use this uh, idea of a cast map, again, which comes from Robert McKee, and if you recall, a cast map, it looks like a solar system where the protagonist is the sun and the other characters are in orbit around him to bring out aspects of his character. All right. So looking at cast design and a cast map for the full Monty, Gaz is in the center. He is the sun, right? Because he's the main character. In orbit around him are... Nathan, who is his son, and Nathan brings out his emotional side, his sensitive side. And Nathan also represents the future and hope for the future. Nathan believes in his father. He's practically the only one who doesn't question his father very much. And, and I think he actually is the only one who says he believes in Gaz. And this belief gives us hope that Gaz might just get his act together and he might just have a brighter future. Then there's Mandy, his ex-wife, who helps to highlight uh, Gaz's appearance of laziness, right? Mandy is Gaz's foil. And it's because of her and her attributes that Gaz's attributes are lit up more. They're brightened, they're highlighted. So she's the responsible parent. She's very sensible. Gaz is a bit of a fool <laughs> and he is not a responsible parent at all. Yes, he loves Nathan. That is not in question. But how many fathers bring their son with them when they're going to go to steal things and involve their son in it? How many fathers have their son sitting there while they're putting a a striptease act together. <laughs> this is, and other characters are saying, this is not appropriate for kids. Dave says it in the beginning. 
one of the strippers actually won't bring his children in because he says this is no place for kids. Gaz gets arrested and questioned. And this is when he is really going to lose access to Nathan. Mandy is the epitome of the responsible parent, and she is a foil to Gaz because she's his opposite. So by her being so responsible, his irresponsibility shines brighter. Then we've got Dave, who's his best friend. And Dave brings out Gaz's empathy, yes, but he also mirrors Gaz's lack of self-confidence. So where Gaz has multiple dimensions, Dave doesn't really have any. And neither does Lomper or Gerald, who I'm about to talk about in a minute. Instead, these three guys have one dominant trait. And for Dave, the dominant trait is his lack of self-confidence. And that highlights Gaz's own lack of self-confidence. Because they both have it, right? But where Gaz has this veneer, this cocky attitude to sort of shield and hide the lack of confidence... Dave doesn't have that veneer, and he also doesn't have a blind obsession driving him forward. Now, Lomper is the redhead, and he's the guy who tries to kill himself. And this represents the worst-case scenario for Gaz, right? Lomper has lost everything, and he cannot see any reason to go on. Now, Gaz has lost everything except his son. But if he doesn't get the money he needs, he is going to lose his son. And if that happens, Gaz might just end up like Lomper. And then there's Gerald, who is his former boss, Gaz's former boss. And through Gerald and Gerald's struggles, we see how hard it must have been for Gaz. Gerald is going through now what Gaz has already gone through. So it's kind of a way to highlight Gaz's backstory while also bringing out his empathy. So each of these supporting characters exists in the story for a reason, and that reason is to bring out aspects of the main character so that the audience or or viewer or reader empathizes with the main character. Because if they don't care about the main character, they're not going to care about your story. Nobody cares about what's happening unless they care about who it's happening to. So all of these things sound like they're radically different storytelling principles, but they're not, they all touch one another, right? They're all interacting. So there you have it. Even though this is a lighthearted movie, it's funny as hell. Gaz is a complex comedic character and the supporting cast has been designed to bring out his dimensions and, like I said, enable us to empathize with him. So that's all I have to say about that this week. Melanie, how did you do with your study of conflict this week? Oh, well, I've come to very different conclusions to you in terms of my thoughts on Gaz and um, Dave and the types of characters they are and their levels of complexity. So this is really it's uh, interesting that, you know, you see Gaz that way because I see him through lo- looking at his conflict 
um, I see them very differently. Although, and I see Dave very differently uh, as well. But <laughs> so it's it's fascinating that looking at a story through different lenses can give you a different result on how you how you see the characters. And of course, you know, in conflict with the conflict study, I haven't necessarily thought about it in terms of whether it's a comedy or anything like that, although obviously the situation lends itself to some really, really priceless moments. Um, And I think one of my favourite scenes is still the um, scene when they're all standing in the line uh, to collect their doll and... um, and I think hot chocolate comes on the radio, and they're just they're doing their little motions and dance all in uh, all in time. Anyway, and I felt this week exactly the same trepidation that you did <laughs> watching an a, an old favorite um, because I know there's a risk, right, that we may uncover some of the flaws in the film. <laughs> so I was having the same experience, um, and it happened a little bit. Like I could see flaws in the film this week, but not to the degree that, you know, it ceased the fun and the the actual uh, enjoyment of the movie. So that was, again, relief, like you felt, exactly the same. <laughs> All right. Now, as I've said in the past two weeks, conflict is a complex blend of wants and needs, stakes, antagonism, and the protagonist's internal struggle. And this is going to be my mantra for this season. Now, the conflict in The Full Monty is really interesting when compared to some of the other films that we've seen so far. So the conflict ranges from simple external conflict right through to more complex internal conflict. So there is also individual external and internal conflict as well as collective external conflict. Well, that's the way that I see it anyway. So let's have a look at the two common sources of external conflict. Well, this is the the collective external conflict is what I've actually called it. So the first is that the steelworks have closed. Now, the external conflict created by the closure of the steelworks is driving the plot for the three main characters. Now, I'll talk about who I consider the three main characters in a minute. (laughs) But their predicament means that they need money. And here is where the external conflict starts to differ for each of them and on an individual character basis. So I have identified the three main characters as Gaz, Dave and Gerald, and they are in the same position due to the steelworks closing because they're out of work. And I've also haven't really considered the other three characters like ensemble members because I do really see them there to support these three characters' storylines. And, you know, the other three characters like Lompa and Horse, they don't have much conflict in their lives outside of the group that that we see. Now, the second sort of common or collective external conflict is the conflict that doing the striptease performance creates. So the obstacles and the conflict for the group are pretty easy to see around the striptease. It's all about the routine and the performance. You know, they have to practice, you know, which is difficult considering their various levels of coordination. You know, they have to secure a venue, pay a deposit, advertise, 
and not get found out. And finally, they have to perform and live up to Gaz's promise that they will go the full Monty at the end. Now, the conflict the striptease creates isn't the primary external conflict for the characters in the story. Instead, it's a common goal the characters share as a way to get themselves out of the similar but different situations they're in. And it's born from the group's common want and creates complications for each and every one of them. Now, let's break down the external conflict for these three characters a little bit more. Now, Gaz wants to pay his ex-wife the maintenance he owes. His external force of antagonism is, in this instance, his ex-wife because she's worried about their son Nathan and Gaz's ability to look after him. The stakes for Gaz is losing joint custody of Nathan and losing visitation rights. Now, Gaz's conflict is all about Nathan and the money and most of his story is about the external conflict that he's facing. Gerald wants a job so that he can stop lying to his wife and pay off the debts that they have accumulated. The force of antagonism that's putting obstacles in his way are his wife and his pride, and and sometimes it's actually Gaz and Dave as well. But what's at stake for Gerald are all the material assets in his home and his marriage. Gerald's conflict is very much centred on his status and most of the obstacles he struggles with are centred on saving face and keeping up appearances. And then there's Dave. So Dave wants a job so that he can start to feel like he's worthy of his wife. The external forces of antagonism are comments like chubby, fat, judgment about his size and taking his clothes off. So what's at stake for him? Well, his relationship with his wife. And Dave's external conflict and his internal conflict are deeply linked and it's actually a little bit hard to separate them. And I'm going to go through and and probably link the fact that he's got more internal conflict than he does external conflict in a minute. Now, a point of interest with all three characters is that their wives or ex-wives are their main forces of antagonism and sources of conflict. This sort of makes sense if the story is about physiological survival and safety. The stress of the character's situation logically impacts those who are dependent upon them. But I'd argue it kind of lacks imagination and variety. Anyway, that's just some food for thought if you're considering this type of story. Now, I want to look at the internal conflict and the story arcs of these three characters. And before I break down the internal conflict more, if you'd like to hear more about internal change, then listen to Valerie's analysis of character in season six, especially the Bridget Jones and the Boy in the Striped Pajama episodes, because they'll break it down even more and give a really good background into what I'm going to talk about. So character arc is about the changes in the way the protagonist feels, thinks, acts and speaks and in that order. To help understand this cycle of internal change, an important question to ask 
and answer is, how do you want your characters to change? And then subsequently, consider what their start state is and what their end state will be. So their character arc will be the change from the start state to the end state. So this is a shift in feelings, beliefs and thinking which are shown through the alignment of your character's words and actions. Now the external conflict in a story must push the protagonist to the point where their start state thinking will stop them from achieving their want. You will need to put your characters in situations where they confront their problems. Then they will have a choice to change or not. If they change, they will grow and finish the story in a positive way or they will not change and the story will finish as a cautionary tale. Now, the best example that I can find in the full Monty of a character arc is Dave. Now, Dave's need is to feel that he is worthy. He is his own internal force of antagonism, but so are the many people who keep calling him fat. Now, what's at stake for Dave is his belief that he's worthy of Jean's love. The strip show forces Dave to confront his body confidence issues, which are linked to his overall confidence issues. Externally, his wife is financially supporting him because he's out of work, and this has led to a crisis of confidence. His resistance to, then acceptance of stripping, is the outward sign of the resolution of his internal conflict and demonstrates his self-acceptance, which is a change to the way he thinks about himself. Now, there are references to Dave's weight from the third scene in the film onwards, and he also says a few times in the movie that he knows what he is, and by this he means a fat bastard who's judged by his physical appearance. The irony is that Dave is a good bloke. He saves Lomper from gassing himself. He stands up to the men who are at Gerald's house to repossess his furniture and he follows along with Gaz's harebrained plans all the time. Dave's change has nothing to do with the striptease and everything to do with his wife's distress because she thinks he's having an affair. Now, once Dave believes that Jean loves him the way he is, he is able to resolve the external conflict that the strip performance actually provides in the film. Now, this is a very simple but effective demonstration of how a character has to overcome their internal conflict to resolve the external conflict. The play between Dave's internal and external conflict means he is the most three-dimensional character in the film and I think the most interesting. Now, with this in mind, I put forward that Gaz has internal conflict but he does not have a character arc. Gaz's start state is he is jobless with no prospects of being able to pay maintenance and he's taking his son to clubs and at risk of losing shared custody of him. His end state is he's jobless, 
He's taking Nathan to clubs. He's lost access, but he can pay what he owes in arrears. And maybe this results in him getting access again to Nathan, but we don't see that. But we can assume that that's what he's going to do. Now, these actions don't show any change in Gaz. He has doubled down on his feelings, thoughts, words and actions. And Nathan is the source of Gaz's internal conflict. Gaz loves his son and he realises he needs to be a good father. In fact, his big crisis on the night of the performance is about men being in the audience and he only resolves this when Nathan orders him on stage. And this is all external conflict. Up until this point, Gaz has probably assumed that it will be a girl's night and there are a few homophobic jokes in the movie, but Gaz also doesn't seem upset throughout the movie that two of the ensemble are in a relationship. So I find this very weird and I don't think it really reflects any internal conflict and any evidence of his internal conflict throughout the film. However, Nathan's feelings, thoughts, words and actions about and towards his father change through the movie. He goes from not wanting to see Gaz and being embarrassed by him to accepting Gaz as he is and supporting Gaz's strip tease show. Now, Gerald's internal conflict is structured in a similar way to Gaz's. His conflict is about telling his wife he's unemployed, but he doesn't do anything about it. However, there is a change in the way Gerald feels, thinks, acts and speaks about the five other men he's taught to dance. He loses his home, his possessions and his marriage, but he does get a job and he does have friends and, the offer, and he offers to find work for them. So his internal start state and his end state are very different, but not a great deal <laughs> different. So I've broken down Gerald's internal conflict this way. His need is to loosen up and stop being so judgmental. His forces of antagonism are his views about Gaz and Dave and the other workers. And what's at stake for him is that he'll continue to be a prat, <laughs> in my view. Not massive stakes from an internal conflict perspective, but it is something. Radio. There is an interesting combination of individual, external and internal conflict, various character arc strengths, as well as a collective external conflict in this movie. And this makes for a really fascinating study of how the conflict makes the characters struggle to solve their problems. Anyway, Valerie, so you can see where you and I differ in our, in our views of Gaza. So or Gaz, I should say. <laughs> um, yeah, what is our action step for this week? This week, I want everyone to go watch another comedy and see if you can spot the protagonist's blind obsession and objects of desire. Even if you're not writing a comedy, this is a terrific opportunity to understand the nuance between these concepts. So, and plus you get to watch a comedy this is not hard homework. This is fun homework. So go watch a comedy and see if you can spot the blind obsession and see the difference between that and the character's object of desire. All right, that wraps it up for this week. 
grab your cloak and dagger and join us again next week when we discuss No Way Out. To support the show, please leave us a rating and review and tell your writer friends about us. For access to writing templates and worksheets and more than 70 hours of training, subscribe to Valerie's Inner Circle by visiting valeriefrancis.ca slash innercircle and follow her on X, Instagram and threads at Valerie underscore Francis. And if you'd like to get my tips about books to help you read like a writer, visit me on Facebook and Instagram under Melanie Hill Author or find out more about me at melaniehill.com.au. And remember, story theory doesn't have to be difficult. It's a tool to help you write more, not less. So take it one step at a time and have fun. Mm-hmm.